You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My conversational partner is Robert Greene. Robert is widely regarded as one of the best nonfiction authors of our time. Past books have included Mastery, The 40 Laws of Power, 50th Law, The Laws of Human Nature, which I have right by you, which I love. Uh, Robert, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. It that means is, the first one must have been pretty good, I guess. It was It was very good. Over 100,000 okay. downloads. You're in our introduction, oh. which you know, oh. is not, not too bad. Hopefully we can beat well. you this time. So, okay, uh, all right. I have a lot to live up to. All right, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try my best as a host, too. So okay. Okay. I, I want to center today's um, conversation around the human condition. So I think that, you know, since we last spoke, obviously the pandemic struck. This mm-hmm. pandemic has been deadly to, you know, very many people. But back in last March, kind of before we really knew how serious this would be, you know, we, we had no idea. I feel the real first time as a young guy, I started pondering kind of my mortality. Was I going to die? Were my family going to die? Were my friends going to die? It was right. like for the first time I'd realized I'm not a mortal, you know, Um so you mentioned the last time that you were on you that you meditate on your own mortality, not necessarily in like um, in a gruesome kind of way, but as a way that, you know, you're not kidding yourself. You're not, you know, the, like the last law of human nature. You're not in a denial of death. Um, right. and, and I feel like to link all this together is that like I feel like 2020 has made people for the first time really focus on the idea that they are going to die. So I would love to know how has meditating on your own mortality altered your perspective about life? Well, it's had obviously a very profound effect. Um, <clears throat> you know, really the, the main thing that happened to me though was two and a half years ago, I had a stroke in which I was in a coma and I came you know, very, very close to dying or to having severe brain damage. So the meditation was very, very real. I make a point and I talk about that in the last chapter of the law of human nature, where we humans are very good at fooling ourselves. We're masters at self-deception. And so when it comes to our mortality, the self-deception that we go through is, yeah, I'm thinking about my death. Yeah, I'm reading the Stoics. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna live forever, but it's not real. It remains an intellectual idea. It remains abstract. Mm -hmm. And my whole point in the law of human nature is you want to take it to a next level. It is not an abstract thing. It's a reality. And the point is you feel inside of you what makes you alive. You feel your heart beating, your blood flowing, the pulse, you know, your, your pulse, et cetera. But you also have death inside of you. It's also your cells are dying every day. You can feel it. You can feel it in your gut. And Japanese, the Zen masters, particularly the, the samurai warriors of the 
15th, 16th, 17th centuries who got very deep into Zen meditation. They, they wanted to create that sense of getting close to death so they wouldn't be afraid of it. And they centered it in their guts, in their viscera. That is where the center, that's where you can feel the reality of your death. And that's, you know, obviously where they, where they kill themselves. And so the point is you want to be able to feel this reality and, you know, you want to take it beyond just this kind of abstract idea that people talk about, you know? And so, you know, I had this process before my stroke of, I would, I guess since I was a kid or I was young, I've always been sort of morbidly obsessed with death and my own mortality. So it's not a big leap for me, but I would always sort of imagine the day that I was dying. You know, now that's going to sound morbid, but I would say, okay, it's an afternoon. This is my last day on earth. I'm thinking, you know, and I'm trying to recreate in my head the feeling there. I'm lying down. You know, it's, it's a bright day here and I'm hearing birds chirping and I know the end is coming. And I think about it and I make it as real as possible, you know? And I've done it so many times in med meditation now that as I'm telling you that I can feel it. I can feel that sensation coming to me. It's a habit, I've practiced it. But then the stroke added another level where, you know, at, at, in that moment where I was in a coma, I kind of had, I didn't have an outer body experience, nothing that dramatic but I had a, some strange visions and I had a strange feeling in my body, almost as if my bones were melting. And so now that feeling stays with me and I can literally find a concrete way of connecting to my mortality. The effect of it is, as I've talked about in the book, is that it heightens your sense of life. So the repression of death, the repression of the thought of your mortality makes you kind of paradoxically sort of dead inside because you're repressing half of what it means to be alive, right? You can't trick nature in that way. And so, you know, you're, you're, not, a, you're not coming to terms with the ultimate reality and, and there's a price to pay for that. So when you think about your mortality, when you make it real, then everything you see around you has a heightened presence, okay? I know that when I'm looking out my window and I'm seeing this tree in the clouds and the birds, et cetera, it's gonna be gone tomorrow. I'm not gonna see it in 20, 30, 10 years maybe, or even tomorrow, right? The people around me, my wife, my mother, et cetera, they're not gonna be here forever, et cetera. They're gonna be gone. I'm gonna have to separate from them if I don't die first. So it heightens this kind of poignancy of life everything sort of has this heightened presence and it makes you more kind of grateful for everything that you see around you. This is something that I'm gonna go very deeply, I am going very deeply in my next book and we can get on that to that later on. But the sense of everything around me is impermanent, makes me connect that much more deeply to what is around me that I'm still alive to see them is basically it. I love the idea of impermanence and I love the idea that that because we're going to die, it gives a value to life. And one thing which I think about is that we've had um, a lot of, you know, kind of health gurus on this show, a number of people talking about kind of anti-aging. And I feel like right now people 
kind of are actually pushing against the idea of death. Like I was reading this one article recently about a Silicon Valley guy proposing some idea of, of the sorts of kind of uploading human consciousness into some kind of machine or some, some sort of crazy idea. Um, but to me, even if I was given that chance, you know, I don't think I would take it because the idea that I'm going to die, as you say, it gives me a sense of urgency. Even if I can't feel it as deeply as you, it's kind of, uh, you know, it kind of drives me, you know. Um, so do you think that kind of in most cases, perhaps death isn't a tragedy, but I guess living uh, an, an unfulfilled life or a life of regret is the tragedy? Well, how can we call death a tragedy when it's just part of, of the pact of being alive? You know, mm. all living things die. So to think of it as tragedy is, is to make the word kind of meaningless. It means that everybody has a tragic life. It means that insects and cats and dogs and everything, it's all tragic. I, don't, I, don't, I find that kind of absurd. It's to deny life itself, you know, so I don't think death is tragic, but as you say, wasting your life, wasting your potential, not living with a sense of urgency and a sense of gratitude that you are alive. Now that can be very tragic and it can be tragic not when you're in your twenties or thirties because you're still, you know, got your energy and your youth and you're having a good time and you're hanging out with your friends and et cetera. You get into your 40s and your 50s and you start getting a little bit bitter and you start looking back and you start going, I had all these dreams. I didn't do anything. Man, what's wrong? And, and you're not even conscious of it, but it starts, you start drinking. You start getting kind of bitter and angry at people. And, you know, that's where the tragic elements sets in. So death is not, is not tragic. But, you know, that whole anti-aging thing, because that's really big in California, et cetera. That's sort of the, 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 the center of all that kind of nonsense. I consider it nonsense. It's is, is just a massive sense of denial. And people, you know, I made the point in, in Laws of Human Nature in my other books. In the past, death was a very visceral reality for you, right? You saw people in the streets dying. I, if you ever read the Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, he wrote a book about the plague in London in 1665. It's a novel. But he had grown up when he was five years old when plague occurred. You know, in, that, in those days, the COVID-like thing, although it's more extreme than COVID, people's bodies were in the streets. They were everywhere. They were in your house, right? You weren't, it wasn't like this sort of, unreal thing. I mean, we're all dealing with death. We're reading about it in the paper. We're seeing it on the news, but we're not seeing dead people piled up on the streets with pustules on their face. We don't see the animals that we eat being cut and slaughtered and the blood dripping from them. We, we see movies where people are being, being gunned down 20, 30 people at a time. It's like a cartoon. It's not real. It doesn't touch us in any way. So we live in a culture that's in massive denial when somebody dies, they're thrown away as far away from sight in a hospital, so we never get to see them. We don't have the poignancy of that encounter. You know, so believing that we can download our brains or that we can take some kind of drug or substance is just part of this insane denial. And I ask you a question. Would you want to be able to live for three or 400 years 
knowing that all of your friends, all of your family, everyone you know will have died as well. And if not, so you're going to be completely alone and you're going to have to watch all these young people coming up with their weirdness and their ideas that irritate the hell out of you more and more and more of them. If you go, damn it, I want to die, kill me. <laughs> right? You know? And then just the boredom of it and the fact that, you know, life doesn't have this kind of urgency in the sense that it could end or anything like that. It would be a nightmare. To me, it would be a nightmare, you know? So that's my answer to that. And I live in California. I, I love I that answer. Um, when we're talking about the kind of human condition, and I think that one thing anyway, which I've gone through, which I feel like kind of a lot of people to experience these days, which I'd love to get your thoughts on, particularly, you know, now, I mean, we've just kind of seen a collapse of narratives of religion kind of being sort of pushed away, perhaps the idea of the family, even as we mentioned earlier, even the idea that now that there are more than two genders and whatnot, there's a kind of collapse of narrative in the world. One thing which I've struggled with is the these kind of existential thoughts, the kind of idea that perhaps life has no inherent meaning and I've kind of struggled with what to do with that how would you approach a topic like existential thoughts or an existential crisis well it's it's very real I mean it's a question we could spend like 12 hours discussing but um you know there's Viktor Frankl the great um therapist who created a whole philosophy around it. He called it logotherapy. And he said that the greatest human need is to have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. And um, it's true that in the past, religion was very good at supplying that. You know, you didn't, you didn't, I'm reading a book on that right now that is, it's an 800 page book and it's a little too long, but it's a fascinating dissection of the end of religion and the birth of the secular age that we're living through and what it really means in the psychology of it all. And he, the point of this book, it's called The Secular Age by Charles Taylor. And the point of the book is religion never really died. It's still very much within us. It's still very much a part of our daily thinking about how we look in the news. And Christianity has an incredible hold on us still to this day. And so I very much believe that people need that sense of purpose or meaning in life. That when you're born, you know, if you're a duck or a goose or a, or a fly, you don't need a sense of purpose, really, as far as I know, um, because it's all programmed into you. You have instincts. You don't have to wake up in the morning if you're a fly and say, I better go you know, sit on this particular thing or not. You just do it, right? We don't have that. We have to get up and we have to decide what we want to do. So we're by nature creatures that are kind of lost. And in the past, as you mentioned, grand narratives, which is very well put, would give us that sense of purpose. So even if it was when religions faded, it was replaced by politics, by nationalism, by communism, by great kind of endeavors, collective endeavors. And those were master narratives of them in themselves. And that's all kind of frittered and fractured away. And so people are kind of going insane. It's kind of like the ship of fools metaphor that we're all living on. And there's sort of a drastic kind of grasping at trying to find that sense of meaning. And, you know, 
um, social media becomes a great magnet for our loneliness. And, you know, I don't have the answer, the ultimate answer to how you supply meaning. I tried to get as close to it as possible in my book, Mastery. And I talk a little bit about it in human nature. And the idea is that you were born with a sense, with, with a purpose. It's inscribed in your DNA and in the way your brain is wired, that you are a unique individual with very different um, way of thinking and different experience and parents that make everything stamps you as unique. And realizing your potential, realizing what, why you're put on this earth, what your calling is, what your life's task is, is, can give you a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose that you wake up every day and it drives you forward. You know, so for me, I'm very privileged and I can't say it's a model for everyone, but I'm very lucky that I have my books to write. So every day I wake up knowing I've got to work on that and I want to connect with my readers and I want to make something that I'm proud of, you know? And so that gives me a sense of meaning. Um, but if you don't find it in your work or in your career or in your relationships, um, I don't know where you're going to find it. And I think it's the source of a lot of unconscious misery that people have in their lives. Um, and I think the loss of the great narratives is actually a problem for us nowadays because our brains function through stories. We're constantly telling ourselves stories and everything around us, all our beliefs are based on these kind of narratives that have been handed down through the centuries. It's what makes us human. And to kind of have nothing to help you connect the dots of why we're here and what's going on, I think is very, very disturbing. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... I, yeah, I thought that was beautifully put. And one thing which you yeah. said, Bede, which really comes to my mind, which really connects with me, is, as you mentioned, Bede, that sort of this collapse of narratives idea. Do you think that perhaps in the loss of greater narratives, that this could be perhaps why people are drawn to more social causes these days? Perhaps, obviously, just in the last 12 months, we've seen the Black Lives Matter riots, we've seen the Capitol Hill riots, we've seen just real chaos. Do you think that perhaps there's any sort of links there? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, social movements is one of the great narratives. You know, I mean, that religion always has been a collective experience. In fact, the I don't want to get too nerdy here, but the, the sociologist Durkheim who studied religion, he said the origin of religion was a sense of being in a group and feeling that power of the group, the kind of awesome that we've all felt for even for watching a football match, the group, the collective energy. And he thought that that was sort of the origin of the concept of spirituality, sort of this invisible energy or power that a group emits. So groups are the source of our religious feelings and people are hungry for that and they're gonna find it in some way. That's not to say that something like Black Lives Matter is not dealing with a, a real injustice. Of course it is. But um, people have a real craving to recreate something in a group setting, right? And so we're seeing it all around the world. And um, I think it's going to be something that's going to drive a lot of behavior moving forward. Um, I mean, obviously, young people are more drawn to these kind of social movements than people who are older 
right? Because young people have a greater need to be social, to be around other people. And as you get older, you kind of become slight, you can become a little bit more misanthropic or whatever. And so, you know, um, I think it's a healthy uh, dynamic when I'm seeing people out on the streets, when people are getting upset, of course it can reach an area of intolerance, which is equal, can be very disturbing. And we're seeing a lot of that in the United States. I don't know if it's happening in the UK, I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that can be, a, that's a very, that's, that's the negative, that's the shadow side of all of these social movements. But if we're not recreating that sense that we've lost from the end of religion and great narratives, if we're not creating it in some way, we're not really being human. And so any kind of group experience is in some way a little bit like a religious experience. It could be a rave, it can be a rock concert, it can be a football match, et cetera. They're not as grand as some of these other great movements in the past, but I think that they're trying, it's a desperate attempt for people to feel that kind of elemental primal energy that a group sort of creates in itself. I thought that was a, a superb answer. And I'm sure we'll come back to some of the sort of threads in now later. Um, one thing which I would be really interested to discuss would be as we're kind of talking about this sort of human conditions and this sort of, symptoms that arise from being alive is one thing that I'd notice with you in particular, obviously this is the second time which I've had the privilege of speaking with you, is that on both occasions I've noticed that you seem to be hugely present in the conversation. Now, in, in, in my own life, I've noticed that, you know, I, as much as I try, I've noticed that I'm doing things and sometimes my mind is on the next task. I'll, I'll reach a goal and it's suddenly, let's move on to the next one. Or I'll be sitting at dinner with my family trying to concentrate and I'll be thinking, oh, I should have sent that email. How, I, how would you sort of advise someone to become more present in the moment? Because I think it's kind of, it's kind of a tragedy when someone's mind is, <laughs> is elsewhere, you know? There's only one way to do it, I'm afraid, and that's through meditation. Now, you can become more mindful if you do some kind of physical exercise, because basically you're trying to shut out the mind. You're trying to shut out what we call in Zen the monkey mind that's always mm -hmm. jumping to, from one thought to another. You're trying to still it and quiet it. So physical activity, you know, taking up boxing or martial arts or snowboarding or whatever, where you know you have to be in the moment. You can't think. Thinking will make you fall. Will maybe even make you die if you're doing a dangerous sport, rock climbing, something like that. That can be very mindful. I agree. But general meditation is the best way to learn how to still your mind. Now I've been doing it for now eleven and ten and a half years of daily. I mean daily, daily practice. You know, forty minutes every morning, and. Um, I can say that I still have that problem, that my mind still jumps around a lot, but it has trained me, it has trained me in a different way, right? So in, in my practice, you know, I, I follow like a Zen meditation and there's, we have what are called koans. These are little sort of parables that you meditate upon that are very paradoxical. And you go, what the hell does that mean? And there's the, the one I'm studying has this one word, me. Now, I know this is going to sound ridiculous to people, 
but it's what you're trying to figure out what that word means and you meditate on it. And it literally means nothing in Japanese, right? Um, mushin means no mind. So mu means no, nothing. Mu, mu, mu. Anytime I now put that word in my head, suddenly I'm extremely present. Mm -hmm. Everything drops out because that word to me now means that everything else stops because what you're trying to do in this particular meditation is become one with the word mu. So it's not even an idea. It's something in your body, right? So meditation gives you an incredible power. It's an unbelievable tool. If you do it every day, it slows you down. It makes you aware of how much your mind is racing. And then it makes you aware of one other thing, it makes you aware that you're not in control of your mind, that you are conditioned basically, that so many of your thoughts don't come from yourself. They come from social media. They come from things that you've read. They've come from things that other people said and emotions that are churned up. And it makes you realize that you have a stranger inside of you that's feeding you all of these thoughts all the time. And so, you know, the deeper you go into it, the more it, it's, it gives you the power to slowly kind of still that voice that just won't shut up. And it still won't shut up in my head. But now I have this tool. I zap it with that word. And it kind of stills for the moment. So beyond meditation and physical activity, I can't think of anything else because thinking about trying to stop it will only create more thinking. You have to be able to get out of that trap. I thought that was some really great advice. And it's interesting because when I enter kind of flow states, when I'm, you know, at one with a great piece of work or at one yeah. at a salsa class or at one uh, when I'm playing football, it's like, that's when I'm at my happiest, you know? So it's yeah. like trying to, to do that. I, I would love to kind of pick up on one thing which you've kind of mentioned earlier was a kind of, was you mentioned loneliness. Now I think that loneliness is just so deeply ingrained into the human animal. And it's, it's, you know, I've, I've experienced it at times. I have no shame in feeling, I don't think there's any way to kind of, escape it even if you're in a relationship at times you will feel lonely how can we deal with loneliness well loneliness is not all bad so if you develop the idea in your head that loneliness is evil and that you need to get rid of it that's a problem because to make anything to think to write to come up with a business to to plan a podcast you have to be alone right and most people can't stand that. They have to have their phone. They have to have some kind of attention from other people and validation. So you need to be alone. And that's not the same thing as loneliness. So there's a discrepancy. You know, if I'm alone with my thoughts and I'm trying to plan my next chapter, I'm not really feeling lonely, but I am alone. So there is a difference there. But loneliness, you know, you can feel you're in a group, you're in a crowd, you're with people in a restaurant, in a bar, but you're not connecting to them, right? So you can be lonely in a group, as you say, you can be lonely in a relationship. So it all has to do with the level of connection that you have to other people. And that level can be very thin and you can float through your whole life, always having these very thin, fragile relationships where nothing ever gets kind of deeper or you can try and go to the next level where you have deeper connections to people, deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, 
I don't want to sound like a a new age Californian nut philosopher here. <laughs> I think because I'm hearing my own voice and it sounds pretty awful that way. But um, but you know uh, the reality is is that we are a social animal, you know, very deeply ingrained in us. And so uh, one of the things I looked at when I was doing laws of human nature were studies of people who were really alone for long periods of time, like in prison, or the guy who was in Antarctica who was trapped by himself in a hut for six months, and you go insane. You start, you don't, you, you start losing a sense of reality. So we feel like we're human and we have a sense of reality by getting the eye contact with other people. And so if you're going through life locked in your phone and you're at a table with other people, and you're still like, you know, looking things up, et cetera, and checking your Instagram account, and you're not really dealing with people and, and looking at them and dealing with their physical bodily presence, then you're, you're, you're going to be lonely. You're making yourself lonely. And I don't think you can overcome it virtually because I'm a great believer that we are actually physical beings. I mean, it's no great secret, right? And we need contact. We need nonverbal behavior that we can judge people by. We need to see their looks in their eye. We need to see their body language to connect to them. So if you're afraid of that, if you're always kind of trying to retreat to that virtual relationship, you are in essence making yourself lonely and you're gonna, so you have to develop the idea that your connection to people can go, can be taken very superficially, or you can go onto deeper levels. And that is what I basically wrote about in the laws of human nature, particularly chapter two, about transforming self-love into empathy and the various powers that you can have through empathy. But um, yeah, I agree with you. Loneliness, you know, particularly now is probably an epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that through getting older, one thing on loneliness that has kind of helped me is that I think for a long time, I would kind of use it as a stimulus to run towards things and kind of unhelpful situations. I'd use it to run towards unhealthy relationships or alcohol or to the bars. One thing which I, I've gone a lot better with, with as I get older is that I kind of try to really feel the feeling of it. I try, try to really try and experience the feeling of it, which kind of brings me on to what I was going to ask you was one thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is I've just noticed really that as a human species, it, it seems to me like we kind of don't like to feel our feelings. Like we get fired from a job, we go to a bar and we drink, we get promoted, we go to the same bar and drink to celebrate. Do you think that as, as humans, we are kind of bad at feeling our feelings, feeling our emotions? Well, we're, we're getting progressively worse at it. And people have noticed this phenomenon going way back. I mean, back in the 19th century, there was a philosopher named Kierkegaard who was talking about how this was happening, you know, in the sense of religion. And he would compare it to the times in the Bible. He has the story of Abraham and God telling him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And the, you know, and he's going to do it because he 
will follow God's word and the, the, the sense of emotion of that and the power of it. And he was contrasting it to people in the 1840s and how dry and emotionless what they were and how they never had faith on that kind of level. So this is something that's been happening for a while where we have become more abstract, what some people call more left brain oriented. There's a very interesting book by a neuro by a neuroscientist called The Master and his and the Emissary, I believe. It's the title. His name is McIlvaney or something like that. Um, and uh, it's about how we've progressively become much more left brain oriented, which is the abstract side of of our brain. And what's what's interesting for me personally and kind of weird is my stroke occurred on the right side of my brain, sorry, the right side of my brain, which affected the left side of my body. So, I, you know, my left side was basically kind of paralyzed. And people who've had strokes on those sides of their brain generally become much more emotional. They can't control their emotions. And I've found that since my stroke, I am much more prone to getting angry, to feeling very depressed and sad, etc. And so this idea that we, we're now being much more dependent on that other side of the brain, I think is very much, you know, a part of, of, of what's going on right now. And I think it's disturbing and it's very, very much the subject matter in my next book. I'm, I'm dealing it <coughs> with it in this chapter that I'm writing, that our problem isn't knowledge, isn't facts and information, which we're all inundated with, the problem is more our emotional lives are being are stunted, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at who we are as humans compared to other animals, yeah, we have reasoning powers. We have the neocortex that separates us from other animals. But we're also the creature that feels a much wider range of emotion than any other creature alive, right? We feel joy. We feel surprise. We feel disappointment. We feel awe. These are things that, as far as we know, an elephant doesn't feel, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's what makes us who we are. And when we feel ourselves, I'm this is exactly what I'm writing about right now. When we have a sensation of feeling more alive than others moments in life is because we feel more emotions flowing through us. We feel more energy. We feel our senses heightened, right? And so... I think a lot of what people are doing now is trying to, are, they're afraid of their emotions. And basically we live in times that are very chaotic and very competitive and very harsh, particularly with what's going on with COVID. And so we don't wanna face anything unpleasant. We don't wanna face conflict. We don't wanna face conflict, a chaos. And so we kind of create these sort of internal spaces that are very safe and very warm and very kind of Pillow, you know, uh, I forget the word that I'm looking for, but, um, and, you know, we kind of block out because the emotional part of our lives includes sadness. It includes all the high and the low emotions. And that's what getting back to the whole idea of confronting your own mortality. You know, when you think about it and you think of the impermanence of everything around you, it makes you both very sad and it makes you extremely excited to be alive and appreciative of every month gives you an intensity. That's really what my new book is about. It's about having that intensity that you had as a child and that you're missing now. And so um, 
I think what you touched upon is a, is a very real, real problem. You're kind of throwing at me things, kind of master ideas that I could spend, you know, 36 hours discussing. So I, I'm worried that I'm going to be superficial in my answers because they're like huge questions, but they're very interesting questions. So I appreciate it. I appreciate it. We'll have to do a part three in the future. So stay tuned. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because it seems to me like right now people uh, through pornography, through social media, through alcohol, through uh, uh, ephemeral sexual relationships, people are spending their entire lives going from not too bad to see to uh, I'm okay. You know, they're kind of just sort of flatlining. And I'm guilty of this as well. I I, I don't pr pretend for a moment that, that I'm not. I, I too have struggled dealing with my own emotions. What are some of the ways that we can feel our emotions, you know, to really come to grips with them? Because I, as you say, I do want to feel the joys. I want to feel the highs, the lows, but kind of also not really get lost in them, if that makes sense. You know, what, what would yeah. be a way to go about that? Yeah. You don't want to get lost in them. I understand that as well. Well, it has to be taken to a level of action. So thinking about, about your emotions isn't going to do the trick, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing that we were talking about, death. So if you take a hike, a kind of a challenging hike, where it's not necessarily dangerous, but there's maybe a little bit of an element of danger, and you're perhaps maybe you with one other friend or you're by yourself and you know everything around you is rather spectacular like i'm sure you have landscapes like that in wales i'm very jealous of you um that's going to make that's going to have that natural effect on you of course people take hikes and they bring their cell phone with them and they bring their problems with them and they're not paying attention to anything so it's the quality of your attention that matters um, but you want to feel that sense of, of empathy that, that you are alive. That there's, um, there's a great mystic philosopher that people don't talk about anymore, but I think is very brilliant. His name is Gurdjieff. Um, he was a Russian from the Armenian, actually, from the early 20th century. And he had this idea that we mostly are sleepwalking through life, that we're kind of... Um, we're all sort of drugged as we walk around. We're not conscious of what's actually happening. So we don't remember things that happened five minutes ago because we weren't present in that particular moment. So um, you need to like get yourself out of that sleepwalking mode. So being aware of it, being aware that your brain has been conditioned by social media, by all these other influences that are kind of, you know, blanketing you from the, this intensity of life is, is, is very important because it'll make you want to get rid of some of that. But putting yourself in somewhat intense experiences will have that. Um, the, 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 the psychologist Maslow called these peak experiences. So if you're writing a book and you're in that flow and you're feeling kind of high, that's a peak experience. It's very emotional, it's very real. <laughs> and it makes you want to repeat them. And it also, when you have a, an intense experience like that, chemicals are released in your brain that make the memory of it that much stronger and that much more intense. So it kind of lives inside of you 
and it has an overall effect on enriching your emotional life. So I'm a very great believer in getting out of the passive mode and becoming more active in life. Activities will end up naturally creating emotions. So if you're passive and you're worried about having any kind of conflict or chaos in life, you're not gonna try and do anything. Oh, if I write a book, I might get criticized. People might not like it. They may not like me. Uh, it's better that I just stay in my apartment and, and you know get high and it'll be all right, man. You know, it's cool. Okay, so if you don't try anything, you don't have to feel anything. You don't have to feel failure or guilt or responsibility. So I want you to get out of this fucking passivity and become active and play a sport and lose a game. Losing is, is an emotional experience and there is something like losing. Other people are trying to get rid of that notion, you know? And, you know, doing something like taking on a project and either getting the high of success or the low of failure, taking a, a hike, going mountain climbing, et cetera, or, you know, just doing a project that engages all of your, you know, all of your energy. These are things that I think will naturally enrich that emotional range that you, that you want to have. I agree with what you said, but there's so violently is the only word I can say. I agree with this so, so vehemently. I would love to kind of finish off this sort of segment of sort of the, uh, the sort of suffering aspects of human nature and, and the sort of that side of that comes with being alive. And I thought that we've covered so much here. One thing I would, I would ask is right now, obviously with COVID we face large death tolls. We face um, a lot of people out of work. Um, I feel like the world has kind of really come to a halt to the people listening now that could be lost, depressed, aimless what would your advice be to sort of get back up um another easy question to answer (laughs) 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 um well uh you know well first of all (laughs) first of all nothing lasts in life so when you know that, when you realize that, it's actually a great remedy. It's great therapy because you know that the anger that I woke up with this morning, tomorrow will be gone. So COVID will be gone. We tend to think that what's happening now is just gonna go on forever, all right? So the world is going to change. It's gonna revolve and the next step is going to happen. And possibly it will be a very exciting and very weird world that we're all entering where all kinds of businesses have been destroyed. Business models have evaporated. The entertainment, the travel industry decimated, but people are gonna be hungry for some kind of experience. They're gonna be hungry to get out of their apartments and actually do something, right? So it's gonna be a moment of tremendous opportunity. I mean, the last time, which is even stronger, was in 1918. We had in the States, I don't know if it was a worldwide phenomenon, so I'm sorry my ignorance, but we had the Spanish flu here. 
Is that also affect England? Do you know? I don't know. The H1N1 uh, pandemic. Yeah, I'm not sure if it did. I, uh, forgive okay. me too. I have no idea. Okay. Sorry to my audience. Well, it was, a, <laughs> it was very powerful in the United States. And then we had just come out of World War One, which was much more extreme for England to, with the millions of young men who were, who were butchered. But it's still in the United States, you know. So the feeling was, God damn it, I want to live. I don't want any of this stuff on my shoulders. I'm tired of all this shit. I'm tired of all this weariness. The Roaring Twenties, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the Flappers, jazz music, wildness. That's what we're going to probably be facing. Our own Roaring Twenties as we now enter this decade or we're in this decade, right? And we've finally gotten rid of Donald Trump. Sorry for that aside. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we can live and we can breathe again. And the world is, you know, resuming its natural colors. So it's going to be a very exciting period that's coming up, right? But what's going to hold you back is your attitude. Because you've been having this, this year of kind of either working to improve yourself and being kind of active or you're going to be sort of passive, which is what we were just talking about before. You're going to be fearful. You're going to be afraid that any day now, this career that I had is going to be gone. And so I better just grab any job that I can. You're going to become cautious and conservative. I can remember my own parents. My mother is still alive. They grew up in the Great Depression. And I was not, I was, I was born in 1959, but um, they were, you know, it was the 50s, the 60s, where things were like really happening and exciting and money was everywhere. They were still had that depression era mentality where you had to save every penny. You had to be worried about everything that you bought. But why? You don't need to. They couldn't get rid of that habit. And there are going to be a lot of young people in the world who are, who are now in the similar period who are going to have developed that cautious gene in them, where they're going to be afraid of life. They're going to be afraid of challenges. They're going to be afraid of putting money at risk and trying something that's a little bit challenging. And it's, it's just like you're fucking yourself if that's what you do. You need to get rid of those, those fears. And that's what you should be working on right this moment because in six months, it's gonna be like insane amount of opportunity. It's gonna be a Lollapalooza out there. There's gonna be so much things that you can create, so many new businesses, so many new ideas. You don't want to miss the boat because you've developed all these negative behavior patterns. I completely agree. And I, I still never forget when the first time you were on the show and you talked about the idea of um, a lifetime versus dead time. That one has stuck with me so incredibly. Um, I, I, I would love to just sort of change gears and sort of up through the sticks and hopefully I, I can ask questions, which... Don't require, you know, a, a book to answer. <laughs> yeah, please, please throw me a softball as we okay, say here. Yeah, I come with a softball. So I remember when I was in university and, and I read this book, The Art uh -oh. of Seduction. It, it, uh, <laughs> this, this it got book, you in a lot of trouble. It got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I read the book many times with um, surprising effectiveness, which... I can't go into any detail because I'm sure my mother will watch this podcast. So I'm going to have to stay tight-lipped about oh, it. Oh, come on. I, come on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to stay tight-lipped about it. But I would love to ask because you've yeah. been in um, a relationship. I believe you may even be married now. 
Um, what are some of the best strategies that you found for making a relationship work? Well, um, you know, the art of seduction isn't really about having a, a, a long-term relationship, although it can be used for that. It's more for like being in your 20s and going out and having some fun, both for <laughs> men and women, gay, straight, whatever, right? So it's not really a book about long-term, but it can be. Um, and sort of the, the main thrust of this of it is, is that you need to be other directed. So people who are bad at seduction, um, using the, let's just go into the, the male seducer right now. He is thinking of himself. He's, and he's not even aware of that. He really wants to impress the woman, really wants to impress her. He's, he, he finds it very, for whatever reason, right? But he's thinking about himself. He's thinking about what can I say that will impress her? What can I wear that will impress her? You know, what, what, where do I take her that will have the, the right impression? It's unconsciously, it's all about me, 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 and my insecurities and my worries, right? And the other person senses this. Seduction is a language. It's a hidden language like a mating ritual. It's not with words, it's feelings. We sense the other person. And a woman has very good radar, very good antennae. She can sense your insecurities. She can sense that your world revolves around you and your feelings, and it's kind of off-putting. That's your main barrier. So to break through that barrier, you need to shut up that me, me, me. You have to get rid of your insecurities and you have to be able to focus on her What's her world like? What are her ideas? What are her values? What makes her excited? What makes her bored? You know? And suddenly, if you start trying to, what I'd say, enter their spirit, enter her spirit and enter her way of thinking, and even imagining, although it's not easy to, to cross genders, even though we live in this cross-gendering <laughs> era, you can even imagine what it might have been like to be her growing up with her parents, her good parents, or her bad parents, and all the experiences she's had, right? And the more you can enter into her world, she will feel it, and you will give her the kind of attention that is individualized. And that is the greatest difference between a really effective seducer and someone who's just awful at it, the anti-seducer. Because the bad seducer treats the other person as if they're, they're kind of a, a clone of everybody. They're just, they're not the woman, they're woman. They're all the other women and they're not seeing the person as an individual with their own tastes and their own weirdness. They're just seeing this kind of caricature. They're seeing projections of their mother. They're seeing projections of all the other women that they've had in the past. To turn that around and to be actually focusing on her as an individual is already insanely seductive, right? You know, because it means you're individualizing your attention and think in your own life. How often do you ever get the feeling, even outside of the sexual realm, that somebody is thinking of me as an individual, right? It's pretty rare, pretty you know, pretty rare to get that sensation. Maybe your best friend, et cetera, doesn't happen often. So for instance, if you're giving a gift, gifts can be very seductive or they can be very anti-seductive. If you just give a woman an expensive ring or or you give her a box of chocolates thinking you're being so thoughtful. It's like what anybody would give. It's, it's generic. It's not, 
But if you think it's, it's something that's cheap, it's only cost like 10 quid or something. It's not, not, not some expensive gift, but it's about something she was talking about. It's about something that's got some emotional resonance about it. That's a gift with seductive power because it's individualized. So that's the main barrier. And once you cross that barrier, if you can continue doing that within the relationship, if you can, if you don't stop, you don't, and they don't become too familiar, and you don't become too bored, you can still keep trying to find new things out about them, still trying to enter their world. It will keep the relationship somewhat fresh because normally, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, as they say, and so you want to be able to fight that. So that's kind of my short answer on that one. Relatively short. I thought that was superb. And, and one thing which I would um, pick up from that is that what you said there really shows the power of thinking outside yourself and also empathy. Um, it, I, in regards to the sort of uh, seducer, I feel like a lot of, say, seducers in the, you know, in their teens or perhaps in their 20s or perhaps, the, you know, go out throughout their life. I feel like most people eventually would look to kind of settle down with someone you know speaking as a whole i feel like most people would if if someone has been a seducer and they've experienced a variety of partners and eventually you know they reach a stage where they want to have a family or they want to settle down and look for more stability how could that person overcome the kind of grass is always greener effect. How can they get out of that seducer mindset in a long-term relationship? It's not easy. I'm not saying that it's easy. Um, you know, you're always going to be tempted, particularly in, in our culture, and particularly if you've had success before in the past. Um, but, you know, you have to think of why do you want a long-term relationship? You want a long-term relationship because you want some stability in your life and you also happen to love the other person and you wanna stay with them and have something deep. And so there's a trade-off. You're not going to have the excitement of the hunt and, and all of the thrills that come from seduction. It's not gonna be like this and this and this and this. It's gonna be more like, like kind of constant going up, you know? And as you're older, you know, maybe that's the rhythm of life that you want. Um, and then you have to think of, you know, do I want to be alone my whole life? It's kind of fun when you're in your 20s and 30s. But when you're in your 40s, it starts to get a little pathetic. And when you're in your 50s, you start looking like someone who can't grow up. And other people are kind of judging for the good or for bad. I have nothing against, I'm not moralizing, because I have nothing against men or women who, who still want to seduce, that's fine if that's, that's their lifestyle. But if you sense that there's something kind of meaningless about it and that you want the depth that comes from a long-term relationship, you have to change your notion of pleasure. Your notion of pleasure isn't going to be in the hunt and getting her seduced and having the wild sex and having all this fun adventure. It's going to be getting to know her better to having all of these shared memories and shared experiences get richer and richer as you get older and older and to have your connection getting deeper and maybe to have a family have children and all those things so they're not like the roller coaster ride but you have to change your notion of what pleasure is and it's actually a good idea 
in some ways to constantly adapt your change, your notion of pleasure to your age. So what I felt was pleasurable when I was 21 is not what I feel is necessarily the most pleasurable thing now that I'm 61, I'm sorry to say my age, but um, you know, it's a, and, and if I still was searching for those things when I was 21, it wouldn't feel right. I've had to adapt. I've had to change what gives me satisfaction and what gives me fulfillment. And so maybe every seven years, because psychologists you know, really like glom onto that idea of seven years as a kind of evaluation period. Every seven years or so you evaluate yourself and you go, those things that I really was chasing after when I was 28 and now I'm 35, they don't mean so much to me anymore. What is it that I really want? That's a very healthy process to go through. But, you know, you just have to basically come to terms with the fact that your notion of what is pleasurable and exciting has to alter. And if you can't alter, you can't really be in a relationship. Man, that was a superb answer. And uh, there's certainly been a lot of food for thought for, for myself personally in this uh, podcast today. So I would love to kind of touch on what we, you know, mentioned at the start, your latest book, you know, the uh, Law of Sublime, Laws of Sublime. What can you tell us about it? Can you give us any exclusives? Well, I mean, I've, I've already spilled the beans on other podcasts, so there's not really much exclusive. Oh, but, Robert. Um, you should have known you were coming on. <laughs> well, well, you haven't, you haven't dished about, you know, your, your seductions and anything. So <laughs> well, you, you can hardly, you can hardly preach know, to me, but true, all right. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the general, the general idea is I've explored it in, in, uh, if you've read the 50th law in law number 10 about the sublime, and then in the 18th chapter of the law of human nature. But basically what I'm trying to do is I'm creating this sort of me metaphor kind of a grand narrative to go back to that idea we discussed earlier. And the idea is that to be human means to have rules and conventions and codes because we're a social animal and we try and at least maintain that, pretend that we're civilized. And those rules and conventions create a kind of circle and we stay within that circle. And it's not just what we do in life, but our thinking, we're kind of affected by that. We don't think about things that are beyond that circle. We've been conditioned. We've been trained to think about life and death and pleasure and everything else in a certain way. And it becomes this kind of enclosed space that we all mentally inhabit and we are afraid to go beyond. Well, the sublime is what lies just outside that circle. It lies in taking your mind what is beyond what, where we're supposed to go to other ideas about the world, to other ways of thinking, to other ways of feeling, to other kinds of experiences, to kind of exploring beyond your own limits, your own potential, and what happens to you. What happens to you is you're transformed. You're so excited because humans don't, we don't naturally like limits. When your mother told you, don't do that, don't do that, that's exactly what you wanna do. It's our perverse nature to wanna explode limits, to go beyond them. So this feeling that we're all in this imprisonment, this kind of politically correct, self-enclosed prison with all these codes and rules, what we can say and what we can do, we're sick of it, secretly we're sick of it. And so it's a pressure on us and we wanna go outside that circle. And 
death is the ultimate limit of all, right? When, you know, there's nothing we there's nothing we can go we can't go beyond death. Yeah. But if you go up to that threshold of the edge of that circle and you meditate on your death and you meditate on your mortality, you get a glimpse through the door. These are metaphors that I develop in the book, but the word sublime from the Latin means up to the threshold, up to the threshold of a door. And looking through that door on the other side is a sublime experience. So when you take a hike and you're feeling like a sense of awe at everything that you're seeing and you're feeling your heart beating and you're feeling this rush of adrenaline, you're so excited, you're experiencing a sublime emotion. And that sublime emotion is a kind of an expansiveness <clears throat> as opposed to the closed spirit that we normally have. And it's liberating and it's exciting. You can't go around. So there's the grand moments of the sublime and then there are the daily moments of the sublime that you'll get in your meditation, that you'll get in how, in how it transforms your thinking. If you look around you at the world and realize that it's impermanent, that it's going to be gone, these are sublime thoughts that will trail through you throughout your life. And basically, I think a lot of people are suffering nowadays by very narrow limits on what they can think. So just in the level of politics or on, on social level, you know, we assume that the world has to be the way it is now. Even though if I were in my 20s, I would be very upset that I've inherited this world, this political structure, the way things are set up. That doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel alive, right? And so we assume that this is the way things have to be. But we're humans. We create our own reality. We have imaginations. We can imagine new kinds of political structures. We can imagine new kinds of social ways of interacting. We can create instead of just passively consuming what other people give us. And so I think we live in times where people have just been kind of trained to think in narrower and act in narrow and narrow circles. And I really want to get a book, that, write a book that's going to make you think that there are other ways of acting in this world. There are other ways of thinking, there are other ways of perspective, other perspective. So that's kind of, that's my little tease of what the book will be about. Do we have a, a release date or any idea when it will be out? I am so far behind on it. Um, basically in the fall, I have another book coming out, but it's a different kind of book. Do you, do you know Ryan Holiday? I do, I do. Okay. Well, you know, he has a book called The Daily Stoic. The Daily Stoic, yeah, yeah. The kind of daily pieces of advice yeah, from got, yeah. Stoic philosophers through a calendar. We're doing the same thing for me, uh, where I'm kind of writing these sort of essays and we're choosing selections from all of my books and a calendar section to make you think about your life and who you are. That'll be out in September. So I've been working on that and it's kind of set me behind. I'm also dealing with a television uh, version of the 50th law. I saw. Congratulations. You, oh, thank you. So I'm behind. So don't ask me the release date. <laughs> my apologies. My apologies. It'll, if, I, if I'm able, if I've lived long enough to write it, it'll be out there, but it's going to take a few more years, I'm afraid, unless I, unless I get one of those anti-aging formulas and I get a, <laughs> and I can go back to my 20s. It's going to take a little while. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Um, I, 
I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for you coming on. I'm grateful that you write. My last question for you today that we sign off all our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living? Well, um, you know, it doesn't have to be um, this vast thing where you, you have to be Albert Einstein or, you know, you have to accomplish something absolutely fantastic in your life. You don't want to set the bar too high so that you're going to be disappointed. But um, the sense that you realized some of your potential, you know, that when you were, go back to when you were five years old, maybe give or take a year, you had these dreams, right? You were going to be the best football player on the planet, right? You were going to be prime minister of England or whatever, (laughs) You were going to be the next Sean Connery. That's more appropriate. <laughs> um, or whatever. Um, I remember back in the, when I was following football, there was a very, very successful Welsh football player who played in Spain where I lived. Can't remember his name. Anyway, it's never, neither here nor there. Um, it'll come to me. Anyway, so you had these dreams, right? And the feeling is that you get distance from them and that you begin to accept that uh, I can only do this much or I'm just going to be, you know, I'm just going to be working at, at Burger King my whole life or I'm going to be delivering things. That, there's nothing wrong with having to take those kind of jobs. And believe me, I've had plenty of them before I wrote my books. But you want to have a sense of direction. You want to be able to think that that child part of you isn't dead that the dreams that you had are still alive, that you still can connect to that person who you were when you were five and six. And if they were looking at you now as you're older, they wouldn't go, God damn, that's, that's, that's not what I thought I would be, right? You want a sense of slightly living up to it. Of course, some of those dreams were a bit grandiose, but to the sense of I'm realizing my potential, I'm doing some of the things that I've always wanted to do what makes me different, what makes me unique. I'm willing to take some risks. And the sense that you're moving in that direction is enough to give you a sense of fulfillment. So let's say you're trapped at some shit job. And as I said, I've been in those myself prior to the 48 Laws of Power. My girlfriend and I counted like 50, 60 different jobs that I had, and most of them were pretty crappy. So let's say you're at a crap job you know, and life feels like it's a dead end and it's never going anywhere. Okay, that's like pretty depressing and that'll drive you to whatever habits that you're going to have. Well, okay, let's say I have an idea. I've always wanted to get into this field. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be in music, you know, and I can't continue on just going paycheck to paycheck. I'm not going to quit my job, but I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to say, I'm going to start developing, I'm going to go back to school at night. I'm going to start developing a skill in this new area. And in a year, I'm going to try and segue from this shit job into something that excites me more. And I'm going to study hard and try and get there. If you could just make that one mental step already, you're going to have, you're going to feel so much better about yourself just mentally. If you have a plan of how to get out of this trap and you, you have to realize that you know, time can go by very quickly. 
you know, it goes back much faster than you think. And when you're 20 or 30, you think you've got all this time in the world, but you don't, it, you know, it'll it's pretty re relentless. So having a sense of a plan, concrete actions that you can take to get out of that, this will automatically <clears throat> enrich you and give you a momentary, a, a, in, in the moment, a sense of fulfillment that you'll end up becoming much greater as you go further along. Where can these guys connect with you, Robert? Who? Well, my audience. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't know who you were connecting me with. Um, um, well, uh, I have this sort of outdated website called Power Seduction and War.com. The and is spelled out, so it's Power Seduction and War.com. There you'll find links to the first three books to Mastery, 50th Law, and Law of Human Nature as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and something else I'm leaving out, but I don't remember. And um, is there something else beyond Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? I don't know. I don't have a TikTok account. But, um, and uh, there's an email for you to send me your nasty comments if you want to send me your comments. I'm a little busy now, so please don't be upset if I, if I don't respond right away because I'm kind of jammed with projects but you can you can send me your emails as well that's the place to go and i i i just want to you know really thank you robert this is the second time you've been on you know you've been uh i think a real hero of mine for a, a long time i've been reading your book now but books now for maybe six or seven years so i am always just in complete yeah. always been a, a real privilege for me yet again um man thank you so much for coming on the show and, and next time you're going to ask kind of simpler questions <laughs> just to, you know, a little a mix in a few okay you know? yeah I'll, I'll, no, i'm just kidding i'm just yeah. kidding next time I'll, I'll use a simple one like how many genders are there <laughs> by then i don't know what the answer will be <laughs> for my cats there's only two <laughs> We're going to have the RSPCA sending us hate mail now. So. <laughs> I, know, I know, exactly.